Um, hello, and welcome Hi. to another Physician Spotlight interview. Uh, my name is Dr. Carolyn Newberry, and I'll be serving as your host today. I'm here with Dr. Lillian Harvey Banchek, who is uh, a fellow of Aspen and currently working on the COVID-19 reserve team for the County of San Diego. Um, she has an extensive uh, history within the nutrition space, and we're really excited to speak with her today about her experiences. Um, so Dr. Uh, Harvey Banchek, so nice for you to join us today. Okay, let's make it Lil. My last name's a little bit long. It's nice to talk to you too. Um, so tell me, I just wanted to start with just you letting our um, listeners know a little bit about yourself and sort of how you got involved in this space. Well, I'm a 68-year-old surgeon trained in New York. And during the process of my training, it was considered appropriate where I did it to go do a year of research. And I happened to be very lucky. I got a research fellowship with John Daly at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And did work on trying to ameliorate the effects of chemotherapy-induced enterocolitis. So did that for a year, and that really kind of triggered my interest in nutrition, especially because what we could do. Back then, we had procalamine, which you probably don't even know about. It was PPN light. But we would have patients who would be starved for three and four days before surgery, would starve for a week or so after surgery, and then everybody's wondering why they didn't, why they didn't recover. And it was like, well, you have to feed them. And this was just, it was like an eye opener to me to suddenly realize we're starving these people. And then we're expecting them to do rehab, to recover and everything without giving them the support they need to do it. And I think that's when I really became interested in saying nutrition is a vital part of what we're doing. Right, absolutely. And, and it's so interesting to hear your perspective and how long you've been involved in nutrition. You've probably really seen it evolve over time. Um, I always love to talk to people, you know, that, I, that were there back when all of this, you know, research began and, and sort of hear their perspective of how things have changed over time and how our perception of nutrition support and its importance in mm -hmm. recovery has changed. Well, I still remember the days when everybody would tell you, you can't give TPN, it damages their liver. You can't do this. And then if you look back, everybody got 3000 calories a day and it was almost all sugar because I still remember when we didn't have intralipid, you know, that they had the original lipid, then that had to be pulled from the market. Now we, we had the soy based lipid, which we're finally getting away from using, but people would get 3000 calories a day and it was almost all sugar. And of course that's going to damage your liver. And I think now if you saw somebody giving somebody just, oh, give them three liters of TPN every day. You'd be looking and saying, no, we're not going to do this. And the dietitians would be very appropriately be up in arms and everybody else would going, you can't do this. And I think you've just seen an evolution from the one size fits all to the reality that different people have different nutritional needs, different protein needs. Uh, to me, the still thing I still remember fighting with people with the nephrologist who say, you can't give them protein, you know, their kidneys are bad, my answer would be, well, they're on hemofiltration, run it for longer. We're giving them too much protein, deal with it, but they need the protein to heal. And people almost looked at the concept of food was bad, that giving people food by tube or by vein was bad for them. And I think we saw for decades, the um, it's a quality of that, of people not healing, wounds breaking down. You'd see the, the pressure ulcers building up. What's interesting, I don't know how much you're into medical history, but I'm sure you've heard of Florence Nightingale. Yes, I've heard of She Florence. wrote a very beautiful letter to her nurses, which I kept and I still have, where she castigates them because they used to feed them something called beef tea, which was very similar to bouillon. Mm -hmm. And she said, 
do not you know, think you're feeding people. Boil all the water and you have a teaspoon of beef powder. Mm -hmm. And if you think you can feed somebody with this, you're kidding yourself. And she just went on and on about you have to feed people. And I think it was known for a long time. It was known for hundreds of years. If you go back into the medical historical literature, they have means of putting feeding tubes down somebody and patients and such. And it just, we got so modernized that it kind of went by the wayside for quite a while. And hopefully, I think we're coming back into it now. The realization, this is part of the whole process that you have to feed people. Agreed. I mean, hopefully we are starting to learn the importance of that now and seeing it more, although I wish um, it was more often than, than we're seeing it in the hospitalized patients. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually a nice segue into some of the work you're doing with the COVID-19 pandemic and sort of the importance of nutrition uh, for disease recovery. Yeah. Right now, when I relocated to, to San Diego, I joined the California Medical Reserve Corps, which is a group of retired, semi-retired physicians, nurses, dietitians, everybody in the healthcare profession. And we were theoretically designed to be activated if there was an earthquake, a fire. In other words, as a surgeon, I would be sent up to a disaster to sit there and do the first line triage and such. And then we got moved over to the COVID response, which everybody at that time, they said, oh, you'll be six, eight weeks, you'll be fine. Well, I'm into year two of it. Right. And initially I worked as a vaccinator when we needed people to vaccinate. And now I work for the San Diego County Education Unit. And you've got this, all the information there. And what we're doing is we're reaching out to all the healthcare providers in the area, seeing what their needs are, what can we do to help. Most counties have an amazing list of resources available not necessarily testing or antibodies, but I'll give you an example. San Diego County has some funds available to relocate people if they can't quarantine in their homes. We have a lot of educational brochures and such we can hand out to the healthcare providers to help them encourage their patients to get vaccinated, to know the appropriate way. How do you quarantine if you live in a multi-person household and stuff? And I've been working on that for the past year and a half because I will tell you right now, it's incredibly consuming. But fortunately, we have people like Paul Wishmeyer who are doing just unbelievably great research into the importance of nutrition in these patients. Again, you've got them on ventilators and you've got breathing problems. And you may not remember, but I remember being told, you can't put a feeding tube down somebody on a ventilator, they'll aspirate. And so they're starving these people. And he's really doing some amazing work showing the importance of just, you've got to get these people fed if you want any chance of them recovering. Right, absolutely. And I, you know, I think that, you know, Dr. Wishmeyer's work is so important. And, and obviously, Aspen's has been a huge proponent and a supporter of that type of research. Um, I'd love to hear more about how you've been involved in the Aspen organization and sort of how that's evolved over time and sort of built the career that you're in now. Well, I joined in 87. So I've been there for a long time. And I just kept working. Do Dr. Daly got me interested in it for a while. My department chair was Dr. Najia Boomrod you may have heard of and he kept me interested in it and between the research and such that I was doing it just got me going then Charles Mueller who got me interested in working with the National Board of Nutrition Support Certification I had gotten certified early on as just it was almost a self-validation of my knowledge base mm -hmm. as opposed to that being a really recognized credential back then which it, of course it is now but he got me involved in the committee to help write the exam then I was the chair of that committee then I went on the executive board and I just this last year finished up my stint as chair, as president of the board of national support, nutrition support um, certification organization. And I think probably in about another three weeks, I will finish my term as immediate past president. And after 25 years, 
be finally stepping down from that. And now I'm actually starting to work with the Canadian Vascular Access Association on their exams, helping them work with the nutrition part of their exams and other organizations in the United States, helping them, mostly a lot of vascular access organizations, helping them work with the nutrition support, what kind of lines you can use for perennial nutrition, how they have to be managed, what drugs you can and can't put through them, what do you do if the patient's got one line and how do you manage this? They've got to have their meds, they've got to have their nutrition also. So I've been keeping pretty busy. Uh, it sounds like it. And, you know, I would love to hear also about, you know, what advice you'd give to, um, you know, junior faculty members and, and junior physicians that are interested in nutrition and sort of how to get more involved and how to incorporate it into their practice. Well, the first thing is, I found something I loved and that kind of took it off from there. Uh, but people you could talk to, believe it or not, I think the RDs are an amazing resource in just about every institution. Um, they know more. I will say right now, I would, most RDs probably know, have forgotten more about nutrition than I will ever know because they're just doing it every day. They're having to deal with the day-to-day -day and you really need to utilize it. And part of what I would say is I think the most important thing is to have a team. You need, no one person knows everything. And some people will laugh when they hear me say that because they think I say I know everything, which I don't, <laughs> but you have to sit there. You need a pharmacist to be able to say, well, you can't mix these two things together. You can't give them the two beats and give them this medication via the feeding tube at the same time. It just doesn't work. You need the dietitians who are much better at us than rapidly calculating nutritional needs, doing the daily assessment of the patient. And you need the physician because somebody's got to sit there and I don't know if it's captain of the ship, but I think we're the best at saying, well, this condition's going on, this condition's going on, this is how this is going to interact. This is what we can expect to change over the time. So you can give that feedback to the rest of the team and say, okay, now that we know to expect this is gonna happen, how do we adjust everything to make it work, to maximize what we can do for the patient? So I'm a big believer in teams. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that's definitely resonated on a lot of the, the different people we've spoken with about their um, experience within nutrition support teams and sort of the physician, of course, is able to, to lead a team, but you need so many other members that you coordinate and collaborate with and sort of bringing their own experiences. Right. Um, I'd love to hear also about how, what you think the biggest challenge for physicians interested in nutrition and practicing within nutrition is nowadays and maybe how that's evolved over time. I still think the issue is the lack of respect for it as a specialty. People will look and say, oh, it's the RD, it's the this, you know, why are you interested in this? You do get more respect if you're in pediatrics because I think pediatrics has a much higher awareness of the importance of feeding children to get them to develop normally. They're much more aware of the issues a child can reach both physically and cognitively, cognitively if they're not fed appropriately. OBGYNs have a little bit more input again because they know what a pregnant woman needs. And they have to deal with things such as hyperemesis, where the woman can't eat properly initially, and how they have to deal with it. But if you go into internal medicine, you go into surgery, you go into all these, it's like, oh, well, the patient's going to eat. You know, it's like, yes, we're going to order food for them. But they don't look and say, well, this person has had chemotherapy and their mucositis and they can't eat anything. So how do we deal with this? And I think the biggest problem is you come in and you start talking to them and they look at you and it's like, okay, but... But the big issue was the cancer. And I would say, well, no, the big issue is if we don't feed them, they're not going to have the wherewithal to tolerate the chemotherapy, to tolerate the surgery. So, I mean, some of your uh, listeners may know I had cancer going on nine years ago now. 
and I had to go through surgery, chemo, and radiation, and I'm fine. Well, I forced myself to eat. And I will tell you, if I hadn't, I don't think I would have made it as well as I did because I never missed a day of work. I just came in every day. I worked. I probably was dumb. I looked terrible at the time. But I just made myself eat. I made sure I ate the right foods. And I think it's so important. They just say, give them a regular diet. And that's not always appropriate for a stressed person. They may need supplements. They may need to have the content of the diet changed. I mean, you talk to residents, they don't even know that there's something called a low irritant diet for patients who have mucositis. So they're not going to give them salt, pepper, chili, anything that's going to burn their mouth, burn their esophagus and such. And you tell them, well, give them a low irritant diet. They go like, what is that? And then they understand, well, I ordered the person a regular diet and they didn't need it. They didn't need it because it didn't taste right. It burned their mouth when they were eating it. They couldn't eat it. They were nauseated, you know, and they just, I, you look at it and we don't teach them. I mean, in gastroenterology, I think the requirement is for 10 hours during the course of their fellowship. Of, right. it, that may have changed. But it's just, probably less than that at this point for most. Yeah, but I'm used to when I was, it was 10 department. hours. Yeah, I know and then they said, long. well, you can do nutrition. Surgery has zero requirements mm -hmm. for nutritional education. They just, it's like, okay, feed the patients. You know, clear, remember the old, you gave them clear liquids and then you gave them a full fluid diet and then you gave them a soft diet. And I mean, I would sit there and say, the person has teeth. Why are you giving them a soft diet? Right. And full fluids is to prove that they can tolerate milk. Mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing in a full fluid diet that's better than anything else. Right. And it's just, to me, it's the overall lack of education. And I know that in the past, several Aspen projects have been to try and improve the educational training of physicians. I don't think the dietitians, obviously they've got it. I think nurses get a tremendous more amount of nutritional education. The pharmacists get it in where it comes from drug nutrient interaction, drug drug interactions dealing with the feeding tubes and such. But physicians, by and large, don't get the education. It's like a, and I think you see an attitude among the incoming doctors. Well, they didn't teach us this in medical school. They didn't teach us this in our training program. It can't be important, and that's such a mistake because it is terribly important to these people that their nutrition needs are dealt with appropriately. Right. And I think it also makes patients feel alienated that they don't want to ask their doctors about, you know, nutrition advice and support because they don't think the doctors know. And, and some of that very well may be true because of the lack of education. And, and well, the other thing, unfortunately, you are. also see it, it leads to, I hate to use the term, but okay, let's say inappropriate medical advice from online doctors. Right. <laughs> Who, I mean, I see an ad keeps popping up on the computer. I don't know why. About a pill you can take once a day. And it makes your fat dissolve at night. And the, they say, and validated by experts. And I look at the experts they're showing is a video from Shark Tank. <laughs> These are not experts. Sure. And it's nonsense. But people are looking at this. And that's the advice that they're getting these days. They're not getting advice from people who are trained in the subject, who are listening to them, and know what to do. Yeah, completely agree. And I, yes, absolutely. One of Aspen's, our medical practice section, we're working on physician education and, and outreach. Um, you know, because this is a brief interview, maybe near the end of our time together, but I wanted to know if there was anything else you wanted to add for our listeners before we wrap up. Uh, like I said at the beginning, I think you need to find your interest in life and go with it. The fact that you're a member of Aspen, that you're doing this, you obviously have an interest in nutrition. Uh, maybe find out I love tube feeds. I love working with things like that. I 
find something in there that really gets you going every day, gets you up every morning and incorporate into your practice and offer to teach things. I think I found a lot of the residents when I would say, hey, you guys want to walk around with me? And they go, we can? I said, of course you can. You know, the P we have a lot of PAs where it's the last system I said, and they say, can we walk around with you? Can we talk to you? And just reach out to them and be willing to teach them. You know, even if they're not going to be a nutrition expert or something, but I think understanding the basics of nutrition, understanding its importance is so vital these days and it's just overlooked. And then you've got great guys again, like Paul Wishmeyer, who are just putting out tons of research. I mean, again, patients were starving in the ICU when he's getting up there saying, you can't do this. We have to feed them. Right. And so that's it. Just reach out, try and educate, particularly the, the house staff mm -hmm. to get them interested in what, in what you're doing and the importance of it. And you're going to someday in all this group of you might talk to 100 people, you're going to find one who's going to become somebody very involved in Aspen, who's going to become very interested and may make the next great clinical breakthrough. And it's going to be you having said, hey, let's talk. Let's go through this thing. You want to come and see patients with me and I'll show you how this is done. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to sit with us. Our listeners, Thanks for talking really to me. appreciate this. And I'd like to thank Aspen for their partnership for this forum. Um, so that's it for this Physician Spotlight with Dr. Lillian uh, Harvey-Banchek. Um, have a great day and we'll see you next month. Thank you so much.